Turn this evening to the Gospel of Luke, to uh, Luke chapter 1. You'll find that on page uh, 1088 in the Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 26 to the end of 33. Again, the focus this evening will be on Jesus as the son of David. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the reading of God's Word. Earlier this year, our king, King Charles, was crowned in a ceremony in Westminster Abbey. It was March 6, in 2023. There were, uh, at the ceremony itself, 2,200 invited guests from 203 countries. In addition to that, there were an estimated 400 million households scattered around the world who took part in viewing uh, the coronation of our King. It's evident that there is still a widespread interest in royalty throughout the world. Well, that's King Charles. I don't know the precise numbers, but I do know that amongst the people of Israel, the Jews, there was an expectation and longing for a king to come who would be crowned as their king. For too long they had lived under other kings, the Babylonian, Persians, the Greek, and now we're under the Roman Empire. And as Jews, they bristled at that. They were keen on having their own king. They hadn't had their own king for 600 years. No Davidic king sat upon the throne uh, uh, since uh, the time Israel was led into Babylon for their sins. And so they were keen on the coming of a king. And so this is good news. That is, the fact that Jesus Christ has come, and the fact that He has come as the Son of David is good news for all believing hearts. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of David? Well, in order to understand this title in the New Testament, you have to go to the Old Testament, where a lot of things in the New Testament become clear. And the most basic passage to go to when we're thinking about the Lord Jesus as the son of David is that great seventh chapter of Second Samuel, where the Lord 
anoints, or not anoints, where the Lord appoints David and assures David of the longevity of his dynasty. You know the story well. David has been living in his own uh, house, and he realizes that uh, the Lord is still in the tabernacle, in this curtained building. And so he comes up with this plan to build a house for the Lord. He shares it with Nathan the prophet, and Nathan says, absolutely sure, go ahead. But that night, the Lord comes to Nathan and says, you actually gave the wrong advice. Go and tell David that it is not he who is going to build a house for me, but it is I who am going to build a house for David. Of course, David was thinking of a physical structure that he was going to build for the worship of God in Jerusalem. But the house that God was going to build for David was not a physical structure, but it was a dynasty that David would be established as king and his throne would be established forever and that there would be in David's line in perpetuity a king who would rule over the people of Israel for their blessing and prosperity. And so God was going to build the dynastic house of David for King David. So that kingdom that David was going to be uh, the father of was going to be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that would last forever. But that's not the only uniqueness of this kingdom. It is striking that the king, the son, who was going to reign over the house of Jacob forever was not simply going to be the son of David. He was going to be the son of David. That's what the promise of 2 Samuel is all about. But he's going to be more than the son of David. You'll remember that Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David, and it begins like this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's undoubtedly a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father until his enemies become his footstool. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus picks up on this very thing in Matthew 22. So here's the thing that you need to follow. The Lord, speaking of God, Yahweh, David is saying, the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And my Lord is none other than Jesus Christ. Now here's the striking thing. Jesus Christ is, of course, the son of David. But here David is calling his son, my Lord. So what's the significance of that? Well, Jesus picks this up and points this out in Matthew 22. Then not only is Jesus Christ, the son of David, which he is because he comes in the lineage of David, but he's also David's Lord because he is more than just a man, this Jesus Christ whose kingdom will be forever. He is also God. He's the God-man who is going to reign over his people, not just for a while, but forever. In fact, the fact that he is the God-man ensures that the kingdom will run in perpetuity, that it will be an everlasting kingdom, because the king who will rule over that kingdom is God himself, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and his kingdom will last as long as he will last. That is, it will have no end. And so that's the significance of Jesus Christ being called the Son of David, not simply that he's David's descendant, though he is, but also that he is David's Lord. Christ, the God-man, has come in the flesh to be the King of kings. And again, this is to connect what was said this morning of Jesus as the son of Abram. This is in fulfillment to the promise that God made to Abram and particularly to Sarah, that from Sarah's womb, kings would come who would rule over the peoples. Christ has come as the son of David. And Mark, the gospel writer, who we understand has written particularly to Jewish believers or to Jewish people in in the hope that through this gospel account they would become believers, Matthew particularly highlights that Jesus is the son of David. Well, how do we see that? Well, when it speaks about his birth, it speaks about the angel of the Lord appearing to Uh, Joseph in a dream and saying, Joseph, son of David. So there's Jesus' lineage. He is a son of David. And you can see this, obviously, in the the, uh, genealogy that we read this morning from Matthew 1. Jesus is uh, in the long line of kings, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah and his brothers, and Jesus. He's he's in that royal lineage. He is a son of David. He is royal. He is a king. But you see it in the genealogy, not just obviously in that the kings are mentioned, but also more subtly. You'll notice uh, that in Matthew 1, verse 17, it talks about the generations from Abram to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So there's three groups of 14 generations. Now this is uh, not listing every generation. There are some names that are left out. There were more than 42 generations from Abram to the time of Christ. But Matthew highlights it, categorizes the generations into three groups of 14. And there's scholars and commentators. They try to figure out what this means. What's the significance of it? And um, they come to different conclusions. But the conclusion that is most helpful, I think, is to understand this in terms of the, uh, in terms of, of, of gematria, when, when Hebrew words are, giving, are given numerical uh, numbers or numerical sums so as to convey a message. So in the Hebrew, as well as in every other language, uh, words and letters particularly are given a numerical sum. I was thinking uh, this day, if you wanted to call ARPA, you could call uh, 1-800-691-2772, or you could call 1-800-691-ARPA, because uh, on our telephone keypads, uh, the numbers 2 through 9 
have a numerical value, as, or have a, a, a literal, a literary value as well. Letters are attached to numbers. Well, that's what's happening here. So that uh, David, the consonants in the Hebrew name for David, which is David, is uh, 14. So the first D is 4, the last D is 4, that gives you 8, and the V is 6. So that uh, David, the numerical value of David's name is 14. And this is a subtle way, but not lost to those who understand this, that Jesus really is, really is the son of David. He has royalty in his blood. He has come as a king. And so you see it in the genealogy, but you see it throughout the rest of uh, Matthew's gospel. Notice, for instance, how he brackets his gospel with these words. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, now listen to this, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So that's at the beginning, at the birth of our Lord Jesus. Well, what does it say at the death of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we're told that in Matthew 27, that they brought Jesus uh, to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and they put him on the cross, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's Matthew's great passion to show that Jesus is the son of David, that he has come in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about the coming king. And it's not just bookending. You can see this throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew if you have an eye for it. For instance, nine times in Matthew's Gospel, more than any of the other Gospels, nine times Jesus is called or referred to as the son of David. You can see this, for instance, uh, in Matthew 12, verse 23, when he drives out the demon from someone. People were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Remember, I mentioned this morning in Matthew 15, the, the Canaanite woman, she cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And in chapter 9, the two blind men do it. And again, later in the gospel, the two blind men call out, Son of David, have mercy upon us. And when Jesus dry, rides into Jerusalem on a, on a colt, all the people cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And then when Jesus cleanses the temple, the people there cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. David is the Father of Christ. Christ is the Son of David. He comes as a royal figure to bring blessing to the people of God. And so you see it in the bookends of Matthew's Gospel. You see it in uh, that, the title given to Jesus so often in Matthew's Gospel. You see it in how often Jesus speaks about the coming of the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven and how the parables are scattered throughout Matthew, which say the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's clear, undeniable, that Jesus has come as the king of the Jews. Well, what is his kingdom like? How does King Jesus rule? 
Well, we notice a number of things, again from Matthew's gospel, but in connection with the rest of the scriptures, that Jesus' kingdom in the first place is a prosperous kingdom. This had been prophesied in the Old Testament in Psalm 72, which is a a psalm of Solomon, but it really is a psalm that speaks of the coming king of of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the king comes, there will be prosperity. Listen to this. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Or this one, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. When King Jesus comes, there's going to be prosperity, a prosperity that rivals the prosperity of Solomon's reign. Notice uh, from 1 Kings 4 verse 20 how, how Solomon's reign is described. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. What more could you want than that? to be under a king who ensured that you could eat and drink and be happy. Well, Jesus' kingdom is a prosperous kingdom. And this is so evident in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is the one who feeds the 5,000, and there are 12 baskets full left over. No one needs to lack anything with Jesus as their king. And how generous and kind he was to the poor and the needy that he came across, the sick and the oppressed. He came and brought blessing, grace upon grace, as the Apostle John says in John's Gospel. The the blessings of the Lord Jesus throughout his ministry were just never-ending. He was so kind to his people, so generous to all. And if you're a subject of King Jesus, you know this yourself. He's your shepherd, and you lack nothing. There's nothing you need that he doesn't give to you. Just think of all the blessings that are yours because of King Jesus. You are justified. You have a right standing before God. You've been given the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to change you, to transform you from one degree of glory to another. You've been welcomed into the family of God with Christ as your elder brother. And that's just the blessings in this life. And then think of all the material blessings that are yours, health and strength and family and loved ones. He's a generous king. And even even when he brings adversity in your life, when he takes your health from you or your loved ones from you. It's not because he's unkind, nor is it because he's weak and helpless and he wishes he could do something for you, but can't. His hands are tied. No, even the adversities come from his sovereign, kingly hand, and even they are for your prosperity and blessing. There is no king like the Lord Jesus. And then to think of the inheritance that is yours when he returns. He's not stingy. He doesn't hoard things for himself. We're told in Romans 8 that we become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ so that 
all that Christ has received as the Son of God and King, he shares with all his subjects. At his right hand, there are blessings forevermore. We could have no better king than King Jesus. And we have experienced that blessings abound where'er he reigns. It's a prosperous rule. It's also a triumphant rule. That's one of the key things to note about King David. In 2 Samuel 7, we're told about the Lord's covenant with David and that David would have an everlasting uh, uh, kingship and that his throne would be established forever. And then in chapter 8, we read, this is in 2 Samuel, we read about David's victories. He defeated the enemies north, south, and east, west as well, that he is the victorious king. And our Lord Jesus Christ is precisely that. He has come to bring the kingdom of darkness, to to drive back the kingdom of darkness, and to establish his kingdom as the victorious kingdom. And again, you see this throughout the gospel accounts. You see Jesus speaking to to the, uh, those who were demon-possessed in Matthew 12, verse 23. And this is particularly striking because when Jesus drives out the demons, this is, listen to what they say. Then a demon-possessed, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed, them, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? You see, they understood something, that when the Son of David comes, our enemies will be destroyed. Our king will be victorious. And that's exactly what we see with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who who defeated Satan. He's the one who did not give in to Satan in in the wilderness when he was tempted by by him. And the whole of Jesus' ministry was this hand-to-hand combat with Satan, a combat that Jesus finally won, and he won it by his death on the cross. That's the striking thing about Jesus' kingship. And Matthew's gospel captures that. As Jesus begins to enter the final weeks of his life, or the final week of his life, the final days of his life, when he is about to go to the cross, Matthew's gospel speaks about that in terms of his kingship. So listen to this, the triumphal entry. Jesus tells his disciples to find a donkey and a colt with her, and they found, it and found them and brought them to Jesus. And then Jesus rides upon the donkey, and the colt rather. And uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And when Jesus comes in on a donkey using a kingly mode of transportation, this is when the crowds that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And then our Lord Jesus is brought before Pilate. And the question, the first question that is asked of Jesus when he stood before the governor, was this, are you the king of the Jews? And as mentioned, when our Lord was crucified, 
they placed over his head the title, the King of the Jews. So in the time of Jesus' most apparent weakness and fragility, when he was being crucified and appeared to be defeated because he was dying on a Roman cross, Matthew wants you to understand that the cross is actually his throne, his chariot, that he is on the cross, not as a victim, but as a victor. He's there because he actually is the king of the Jews. He was mocked by the Roman soldiers. They put a crown of thorns, put a reed in his right hand, and put a scarlet robe. Hail, king of the Jews. But he actually was the king. And he is the one who defeated Satan by his death on the cross because Satan trades only in sin. And when sin is dealt with by the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ, Satan loses his power. Christ is the victor. His kingdom is triumphant. It's prosperous. It's triumphant. And it's universal. He came as the king of the Jews, but not simply to be the king of the Jews. He came to be the king of the nations. This was the great promise of God to the Lord Jesus in Psalm 2. Remember how Psalm 2 is a kingship psalm. It speaks about the appointing of the Lord Jesus as king. Listen to, to what the one who sits in heaven says. As for me. Remember all the, the nations rage, the people's plot, the kings set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, and God's in the heavens laughing. And then he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my hill. That's, that's God's response to all the opposition of uh, the nations and the rulers and the movers and shakers in this world. Do what you may. But I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the father speaks to the son. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he says to his son, to the Lord Jesus, Jesus, ask of me. Ask whatever you want. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus has given the nations as his inheritance, as his possession. He is not just a tribal king, but he is a universal king. He is the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All nations are owned by him. This too was prophesied not only in the Psalms, but also in Isaiah, a passage that is often read around the birth of Christ. You'll know it. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of of your rising. That is, that Christ would come to the people of Israel, but not just for the people of Israel. There, the nations would come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In fact, we read in Isaiah 60, verse 6, they shall come bringing gold and frankincense. Remember the wise men. They came, Gentiles, to worship the Lord. They came to worship He who was born the King of the Jews. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you see the Gentiles coming to worship Christ. This was mentioned this morning. And then it ends with all authority given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He sends His church to go and evangelize the nations. That in itself is striking. Because I wonder what you would do if you were scorned and ridiculed and hated by the people you had come to save. They mocked you, spat upon you, handed you over to the enemy to be crucified. What would you do once you had risen from the dead and were now in a position of authority and power? So many of us, I think, would be tempted to to use our uh, power to do harm to those who have been unkind to us, to pay them back for how they have treated us. But that's not what our Lord Jesus does. The Lord Jesus uses His power and authority as the resurrected Christ, as the victor, to bring blessing to the nations, to send His ambassadors throughout the ends of the earth and to say to rebels, will you please lay down your arms? Will you not surrender to me? Will you not be reconciled to God? And listen, here's the good news. Not only ought you to be reconciled to God, but I as the king have taken care of their reconciliation price. I have borne the judgment that your sin deserves so that I might bring you to my Father. The nations are evangelized by Christ's ambassadors. That's how our Lord Jesus uses His authority and power. But He won't do that forever. Now He does. He is reigning, and this is a time of grace. But one day, that time of grace will be over. There will be no longer any opportunity for reconciliation. One day He will come back And he will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will destroy all who have rejected his offer of amnesty and his offer of peace. All who have not surrendered, who have not bent the knee, who have not sworn allegiance to King Jesus will be destroyed when the Son of David returns in glory. But now, Now, He welcomes you. He urges you to come and bend the knee and confess Him as your Lord and Sovereign. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is a kingdom of prosperity, of triumph, and it is a universal kingdom. All nations shall worship Him. We live in a democracy. And I think most often we're happy we live in a democracy. It certainly beats uh, what some nations live under with tyrants domineering them, corrupt leaders uh, trafficking in their own 
safety and welfare. But we don't just live in a democracy. We live in a constitutional monarchy. We have a king. We might not like the king that we have, but it's not for us to choose our king. He's appointed through hereditary lines. And I'm glad that we are a constitutional monarchy. I I love that we can exercise our rights to, to vote in our leaders. But I like also being reminded that we have a king because the kingship of King Charles reminds me of the kingship of King Jesus. And I'm so thankful that God did not allow us to choose our own spiritual king because we never would have chosen one as good, as kind, as generous, as loving as the one that we have been given in King Jesus. I mean, what king uses his wealth and his position to bring blessing to people? What king gives his life? Most kings demand the lives of their subjects for their longevity. This king gives his life to his subjects and for his subjects for their longevity. There's no king like King Jesus. And so as we think about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the marvel that that he is as the son of David, we today stand at the cross and we say, Hail, King Jesus, we worship you. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, what a king you have given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our choice, that he was not, first of all, our choice, but that he was your choice, that you had chosen him from before the foundation of the world, not only to be the Lamb of God who would take away our sins, but that he would be our sovereign who would rule over us. And what an excellent king you have given to us, far better than we deserve, far greater than we could begin to imagine. And so we bless you, our God, for Jesus Christ the son of David. We pray that you would give us grace, that we might be faithful subjects of our king, that we would never resist his laws or his plans for our lives, that we would be submissive to him, and that we would gladly follow him wherever he calls us to go, that uh, we would fight hard with the captain of our salvation against the powers of darkness, and that we would run in the way of his commandments, glad to be serving such a gracious king, and that we would be his faithful ambassadors, telling people around us as opportunity arises and among the nations, saying, our God reigns. And he's a God who is offering peace and reconciliation to rebels. So give us grace to be faithful as your subjects until that day when Christ returns, and when we will see the Lord God omnipotent reigning forever and ever. Amen.